Welcome to Smart in the City, the Babel podcast where we bring together top actors in the smart city arena, sparking dialogues and interactions around the stakeholders and themes most prevalent for today's citizens and tomorrow's generations. I am your host, Hamlin Shimizu, and I hope that you will enjoy this episode and gain knowledge and connections to drive the change for a better urban life. Smart in the City is brought to you by Babel Smart Cities. We enable processes from research and strategy development to co-creation and implementation. To learn more about us, please visit the Babel platform at babel-smartcities.eu. So at Babel, as you know, uh, probably, uh, one of our goals is to increase the livability of a city. Um, and that means that the citizens living inside the place have obviously a high level of happiness in the city. Um, but yeah, the question really is who is looking and measuring happiness? How do we do that? And why should governments and other stakeholders care? Um, and also, like, what makes people truly happy? Uh, so this is a really interesting topic. And I, I'm really, yeah, excited to introduce you to our guests today, who will be your experts on the topic matter. So first up, we have Katarina Lachmund. She's the senior analyst at the Happiness Research Institute. Welcome to the show, Katarina. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. And of course, her colleague is also here providing a, a mixed uh, perspective as well on it. Her name is Kamila um, Michalski. Sorry, <laughs> I always uh, I butcher the names, but um, she's the data analyst. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. You got my name right. So okay. all good. <laughs> Perfect. Second time's the, the charm. So um, really excited to have you all here. Yeah, happiness. So let's start off um, with a little teaser question, as we like to do in this podcast. Um, and I did ask you if you uh, have a favorite, well, funny or otherwise quote about happiness um, that you wanted to share with us today. Yeah, I would actually quote our founder, uh, Mike Viking, who always says happiness doesn't decrease uh, when shared. So it's not cake. Um, and I think it's quite simple, but also like very easy to understand the core point of happiness. Mm, that's that's a, that's a really good point too. Um, there's not many things that when you share them, they don't decrease. Then so that's that's a very nice one. Um, great. So that being said, I, I want to know a bit more about yourselves. Really setting the stage for who are you. Um, how has your journey led to, to be at the Happiness Research Institute? How do your roles differ? Um, so maybe Katarina, you can start. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Inak uh, or Katarina and um, I joined the Institute in 2020 um, when they were looking for someone with experience in managing multiple stakeholders and client communication project management. And this is what I did actually my entire career. Um, and then this is kind of how I started. And then during the time, um, I also tried to break down the complex information and analysis from, from the data analyst. Um, so people haven't, or so that everyone, or like it's easier to understand because like numbers can, even though they are super clear, it can be hard to understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Dissecting the numbers, very important job. Um, and uh, Camila, what what do you do, and what's your story? 
Yeah, um, so I'm a data analyst here. I'm also the newest addition to the team. So I actually just joined the Happiness Research Institute this past summer. I moved from Toronto to Copenhagen. Um, but my acquaintance or my dance with happiness research actually began quite a few years back. So I have um, an epidemiology degree and I was doing epidemiological research back in Canada, um, but it wasn't around infectious disease. I, I was looking a lot at mental health, uh, mental health population statistics and eventually how to measure the well-being of populations. So I started looking into happiness metrics, things like community belonging, coming up with indicators of community well-being. And that's how I came across the work being done here at the Happiness Research Institute. We had some overlapping collaborators, um, became familiar with their work, with their indicators, and I really liked what they did. So when uh, we got in touch and they had an opening, I flew over and made a big move. Cool, to Copenhagen, one of the best cities. <laughs> My personal favorite. So <laughs> good, good move. Good move. Not that Toronto is also not a, a nice city. Um, don't want to offend any. Um, how do you call people from Toronto? <laughs> Toronto Indians? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, th- I think they would all agree in terms of uh, happiness research between the two cities, Copenhagen's a uh, where you want to be. <laughs> well, Nordic cities in general, right? Rank always very high up on happiness. Um, exactly. Yeah, so interested to to dig into more of the happiness stuff. So this topic is so intriguing to me. So um, I, I love that we're talking about it. Um, so since a lot of our listeners are coming from more on the municipality side of things, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to them on like, why should municipalities care about happiness? And like, how does this fit in? Like, they're very busy doing projects, et cetera. Like, how does this all fit in with their work? Um, I think like, I mean, if we think about municipalities, then we also think about elected elected representatives from the people. So very simplified it's their job to take care of the people and it's their job to make people or the citizens happier or or to guarantee a good quality of life this is why they have been elected for so even if you might uh, look at it from different angles um, that is more or less the number one promise like people vote for you because they believe that you will improve their life Um, so this is what like very (laughs) maybe um confrontative answer on why municipalities should care um yeah i have a bit of an anecdote that comes to mind and so here at the happiness research institute um Ina organizes a course that us and our colleagues teach together and it's a happiness course for university students um and one lecture comes to mind where a colleague, he starts with a definition of what the, the ultimate goal of government is. And the process of the lecture is that the students slowly take apart different pieces of the definition. So the definition he starts with is that the ultimate goal of government is to ensure complete happiness for all people. And then word by word, we start to break it down. So what does ultimate goal mean? Um is a government in a position to ensure something for people? Is all people enough? Do we also need to think about the environment? So we take these things piece by piece and they reconstruct the definition. And it usually ends up to be somewhere around of like a core goal of government is to reduce suffering and uh, enable the pursuit of happiness for all people and for future generations. So what we've noticed is that different parts of this definition tend to change, but there always remains this Uh, like an agreement that there is a responsibility of government to enable people to pursue happy lives. And 
We don't see that agreement just in this university course. It's just a story that comes to mind, but we see a lot of talk among politicians too. So there's uh, happiness councils in New Zealand and in the UK that adopt this framework. And so I think our advice would be that if you want to know how to improve the well-being of citizens, it's important to ask them themselves how happy they are living in the society that you're providing them. Uh, ultimately, and that is also one of the the big um, rules in happiness uh, measurement, like you are the only one who's able to say if you're happy or not. Like I cannot just say like, oof, I think Camilla is five happy. Like Camilla is the only who can say how happy she is. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of leads into my next question. What I wanted to ask about if happiness can actually be accurately measured or not, because, um, okay. So if each person can say, okay, I'm happy or I'm not happy, how do you actually scale that? How do you get accurate data from that? And how do we know if it's reliable enough data to make big decisions from it? Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if we talk about happiness, then we actually talk about it as an umbrella term and we split it up in like three dimensions. There is the effective um, happiness, which is how have you, how, how did you feel yesterday? Like, have you been stressed? Have you been loved? Did you feel anxious and so on? Like, this is really like short term measured. And then we have the evaluative uh, dimension where people rate the satisfaction on their life in general or as a whole and then there's the eudaimonic dimension which is kind of if you wake up in the morning is there something you look forward to during the day like do you have a meaning in life mm -hmm. and so I think people's questions about measuring happiness a lot of the time um, maybe people are thinking more about happiness this day-to-day -day effective emotion that changes and we know that is quite variable little things can happen in your day and Asking people how emotionally happy they are can be pretty variable, but the um, really like widely accepted metric, the one that we used is life satisfaction, um, and it's an overall capture of someone's well-being. So it speaks to that evaluative dimension of happiness that Ina mentioned. Um, and there's a few different ways to measure life satisfaction. So there's a number of validated scales. Some ask questions specifically about your satisfaction with different domains in life. Uh, some are a series of 10 questions. The ones that the one that we like the most, it's a single item question. And it just asks people how satisfied overall on are you with your life as a whole these days? And you give us a number from zero being very dissatisfied to 10 being the most satisfied. Um, and this measure, there is quite a lot of research on its validity and reliability. So we know it's quite good at capturing that long-term happiness, and it's not so affected or porous to just your daily mood swings. So there's studies done where we ask this question to people in short time frames, and it stays pretty stable. Um, there are some issues that we need to consider. So We also know that when you ask certain questions before this, so say someone is unhealthy and in a survey we're asking about their health before this, we know that that tends to lower the score. So when people are developing surveys or kind of know about these metrics, there's a lot of thought put into where we ask them, how we ask them, and when we analyze them in order to, to really optimize that reliability. Really interesting. Um, I actually had a random question that came into my mind while you were speaking as well. And I'm not sure if you have accurate data on it or anything like that, but it's just interesting for me. We can cut it out if it's not interesting. Uh, <laughs> but um, 
it's related to our field of like smart cities, like often uses a lot of technologies. I'm just wondering if you've come across any any research or you've done any research on how technology affects the happiness of people. Yeah, we've been uh, thinking about it um, um, or like discussing it quite uh, back and forth because we do see technology as an enabler to happiness, but also in a way as a um, barrier to to happiness. So if we if we look at well being data, we do see a global decrease, and it is not clear yet to which extent this can be traced back to technology and there's like this ongoing debate on the negative effect of social media to uh adolescent uh well-being and there is not yet a black or white answer to that um but yet we we know that the biggest impact on on well-being is social contacts and that they decrease this is not because of technology so what we kind of try or the point that I'm trying to make over here is technology can help if it's used and designed correctly. So if you think about, um, I mean, the beginning of social media where it like literally was apps to connect people and not to shout out your opinion, it could have, have a way more positive impact on well-being. And then there is this entire like technology um, that also can help Mm -hmm. do you want to say that i mean yeah no i think that's exactly the point is that it's maybe not so much of a clear-cut answer of whether technology uh like what the connection is to happiness there's uh applications of technology where it can be detrimental like ina mentioned we see some studies where it shows consistently being plugged in can really stress you out can lead to burnout that has you know uh, negative effects on our happiness but there's also applications like in uh, you know, smart city design of technologies where they can be used to actually enhance how municipalities deliver services to their citizens. So where it can improve healthcare delivery or in- improve public transportation, these kinds of factors that we know those factors can improve happiness of people. So where smart city technology can do that, definitely there's a, a huge opportunity to improve the happiness of people. Um, I do think like one lens that we would bring to it as happiness researchers is that it's really important um, to like when deciding on the integration or implementation of certain technologies in cities to always approach it with a kind of human centered lens or a human centered approach where we're asking who does the technology include? Who does it exclude? Um, And is this group you know, like is the group that this technology is helping a group that we want to prioritize right now? Are, are they the people that should get the most benefit right now? So I think just keeping those questions in mind when we're talking about the benefits of technologies is uh, what where, where the happiness researchers would lead you. Yeah, I, I love that approach too. We're, we're big about the human-centric um, approach with what we do at Babo as well. So I, I love that you mentioned that. Um, and and does it does the data around this show any kind of trends in smart cities at all? Um, like, what are you seeing as time progresses? Well, I mean, as as I mentioned before, what we do see is a decline in well being, and we do see a decline in social connection. Um, I would say that's actually like in in the responsibility or in the field of responsibility of urban planners or city planners to make sure they um, create or offer enough 
free public spaces to meet. Um, so, I mean, obviously, the more parks you have in a city, the easier you can meet with people outside. Um, and then if you are outside, the more likely, or if, if, if you are outside, there's a high chance that you interact with people you haven't been interacting before, which is not happening within uh, your own flat or within your own house. So the more open and, and accessible free spaces we have, in a way, the better, the happier the city, um, because the higher chance of social interaction and thus the, the uh, lower chance of isolation there is. Mm -hmm. Good. Um, Camila, do you have anything to add to that? Um, like, do you see, do you see anything happening in cities that you think is actually, um, like a, a, a negative trend or like something that we should watch out for anything like that? Um, I would say generally kind of to the answer we've already given is like, um, just that exclusionary piece. I think sometimes smart city and, and there's like a, a bit of a luster around technologies um, and there can be a focus on wanting to integrate technologies or certain interventions that do have benefits. Um, but when assessed, maybe they just benefit people that are already quite high up on that happiness scale. Um, and we want to make sure that we're like, we advocate that, you know, when we're looking at different interventions, there should be a little bit of a preference given to people that are lower on that scale and bring them up to the population mean. And that overall makes for a happier city, a happier society is when the majority of people are in and around the same place and we're not exacerbating any kind of inequality. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. And when we were speaking before, you were you were talking about uh, this kind of currency of happiness. Can one of you or both of you elaborate on this? Sure. Yeah, I'll uh, give it a stab. Um, but so, currency of happiness. It's essentially we we talk about it as a common currency language that we can give people and, and decision makers to talk about how valuable certain programs or interventions are. Um, so this is really helpful in decision-making, um, decision-makers, especially like in municipalities, they may face budgetary decisions where they're choosing between putting money towards a program that's aimed at one gap in the city versus another. And to help make these calls, uh, there's different kinds of analyses that can be done. So people can look to cost effectiveness analyses or returns on investment. And traditionally, those types of analyses are really good at capturing the economic value of a certain program or intervention, uh, but they're not so good or they even completely miss capturing the social value of an intervention. So, for example, if we're looking at uh, investing in a program that maybe improves employment rates in a city, uh, municipal decision makers, they can see how much money goes into this program, how much money people can make from this program and, and how their income increases. But we don't really have a number that can quantify the social value that's also associated with gaining a job for those people. So what about the value that comes with increasing their social contacts through their job or having an increased sense of purpose, more confidence? Uh, it's hard to put numbers to that. Um, and when we can't put numbers to that or when we're making budgetary decisions and those kinds of values aren't on paper, it means that uh, there's very limited effect of actually being able to show how good something is when it's not tied to any kind of monetary or economic impact. Um, and so that's where we come in with this currency of happiness. We quantify and we give a numbered value to 
different social benefits. Um, and so one metric we work with or, or that we developed, it's called the well-being adjusted life year. And it's based on that life satisfaction measure that I that I mentioned. Uh, it essentially tells us, so it's a well-being adjusted life year. One of those means that you have lived one full year in full happiness. And so we, we can do studies and analyses where we see how certain conditions can change how your life satisfaction is. And we can say something, for example, like, adding a school lunch program here that affects 500 students can give us X number of wallies. And, and wallies are the well, uh, well-being adjusted life years. And by doing that with multiple different programs or interventions, it can be really helpful for decision makers to say, you know, putting this much money here, we can actually derive this much happiness or this much well-being for this many people. I love the quantifying happiness because, you know, to get buy-in a lot of times in cities, you have to give them these these numbers. You have to really quantify it. It's impossible to go and say, hey, from uh, get management buy-in, right? And say, hey, this this will make our citizens happy. <laughs> and they'll say, how by how much? What, what, what will be the actual increase? So I love that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, because our focus is on cities, I do want to ask a little bit more about... Um, how you work directly with cities and what you have learned, like working with them? So in general, we would kind of follow a scheme. Uh, that being said, obviously, each municipality is uh, an individual case, but the scheme is comparable. So we would first obviously map the stakeholders and also meet them because um, there will be different needs and different representatives of different needs and agendas and goals for the municipality. Um, so I think that is where, with all the technology, this is where the human part comes in and also where you have to um, ensure a good starting point because at the end, it, this is like a big project and everyone should be um, aligned on and, and um, how do you say, like... Uh, Going in the same direction. Mm -hmm. um, so we would then, in cooperation and conversation with the stakeholders, um, figure out individual um, challenges of the municipality. So usually the fields are comparable. So we always talk about the community. We will talk about housing. We will look at transport and education, labor chances, and so on. But then there's still, obviously, as I said, each municipality is different. So you can't compare um, a university city with a suburb. So, I mean, they, they have different needs. They have different challenges. Um, so the first part is actually to listen and research and understand a lot. Um, and then we will design the custom-made survey. And as Camilla said, like just the, the, the amount of thinking uh, that needs to go in, in the individual survey that is like not to underestimate. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, we will actually make sure that we get enough answers from the different um, groups within the municipality. So again, like while um, technology can be like very helpful, we still have to make sure that uh, people with no access to the internet, and yes, it's 2023, but there are still people who don't like the internet or who just don't have access, um, that we don't exclude them. Um, so this is um, super important because the main goal or like one of the main goals is that we 
actually um, listen to the quiet majority instead of the loud um, minority. So if you just have like town hall meetings, there will usually be the same people showing up and they're showing up since 20 years. And since 20 years, they have something to tell you. Um, so it's a really important to to really get a good sample size to also understand the, the specific needs for that municipality. And uh, then we will analyze the data or like Camilla will analyze the data. <laughs> um, and then we, um, she or like the team of data analysts can identify um, the topics with the biggest impact on well-being. Like this is again where the well-being currency um, comes in. Um, and then we consult the decision makers on priority setting, which again is evidence-based or based on, on, on the numbers. Um, and then we, together with the decision makers, we will find potential interventions. Um, and then after a certain amount of time, we would actually always advocate to redo the survey to measure the impact or to also see if the priority has shifted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. And and how does that um, differ with the work you also do with private sector? So how do you, um, yeah, how do you work with private sector? Actually pretty much comparable, but in a way more focused way so it would still be having the conversations first identifying um the, the the priorities or where the the private sector let's say like a, a big employer um where they think they have um the biggest room for improvement so that would be definitely part of the survey but then there's also like different fields where we know already by the, the the research we have done in the past, that this is usually like a very big point that leads to uh, work unhappiness um, mm -hmm. or, or that affects the happiness at work quite a lot. Um, and, and like number... I think it's similar like in terms of how we work with cities. One of the applications of our private sector, as you know, was saying is, is in the workplace. So it's almost like you can picture an employer or workplace as a mini city. And similarly to that whole pro process, you know, just described, we um, identify what, what, what specific context considerations we need to include and, and we'll survey and identify those gaps again. Um, and then another application that we work with as well as um, portfolio analysis for impact investing as well. So there's some interest in our work to show how um, different investments can sh can actually increase the well-being of people when some companies want to show how they're doing good or how the companies that they're investing in are doing good or they're choosing between companies to invest in. They will ask us to uh, do a bit of a well-being analysis and show them what are the potential outcomes or benefits to be gained there. Really interesting work. Um, and And now I just want to get to the end of all of this and say, is there anything I missed? Um, like, do, do you think that there's any other open points that we didn't touch on today that you really think is really crucial for our listeners to know? Um, so I think, I mean, because you asked us how, um, how we work with both municipalities, but also with private organizations, I think it's very important also to um, be aware that quite often it can't be um, looked at individually like i mean if there is 
um, a municipality and there's like two or three really big employers within that municipality, then they should be included um, and like sit on one table together with the municipality. And this is not about like having too much of um, an influence into politics, but um, I think or like there was an awareness already before the pandemic, but it's now really accelerated that also like private companies have a responsibility for the work or, or the well-being um, of their employees and of the team. So if you suffer uh, in your private life, you will not be uh, happy and thriving the moment you kind of enter your workplace. So um, if you as a private company have the opportunity um, or the financial power to, for example, offer a kindergarten, um, then please go ahead because there's like everyone in the municipality with kids will be very grateful for that. Um, and that again also makes it way more attractive for talents to move to the municipality um, and to kind of do your part in um, working against the shortage of um, specified workers. I love this perspective because at Babel, we we really work in this this place between public-private sector, trying to get more cooperation going between the two. So love that perspective. I actually just had a, a quick follow-up question on that as well. Um, you were saying like, if people aren't happy, like in their workplace, et cetera, um, have you actually seen like what, what determines someone's happiness more, like their work um, or their outside of work life? Do you know that? <laughs> yeah it's a t it's a t tough and nuanced question i think yeah. it really depends on also like what your work is and what those conditions are uh different cultures also have different standards for work-life balance the general macro trend i will say is that the happiest societies are the ones that have the best working conditions and the best balance meaning that the pendulum pendulum doesn't really swing you know towards 12-hour workdays. Um, but, you know, we're happiest when work is a part of our life and not our life and doesn't dictate our life. Yeah. Yeah, good. I know it was a bit of a nuanced question. I was just very curious. So <laughs> um, good. Um, with that being said, um, that wraps up kind of our main interview part. Thank you so much. Um, and now we move into a, a bit of a segment. We always do these fun segments. And I have selected one that we actually haven't done in a while um, for you all. And it's called Hot Take of the Day. Hot Take of the Day. We want to hear an opinion of yours that may be slightly controversial or debated. Do you have something in mind? I do. And I'm really happy you just asked this whole, does work or life contribute more to happiness? Because the hot take relates a little bit to this, which contributes to the question. Um, generally, like this whole nature versus nurture when it comes to our well-being, our health and happiness. Um, and so a punchy line that I always like to share when people ask, you know, like, what's a big learning from your work? Uh, it's that our zip codes where we live are better predictors of our well-being than our genetic codes. So, again, a little bit of nuance here. There's like relative influence depends on what kind of disease you're looking at. But just in general, I think the hot take is that this really holds true just how much our social, physical environments impact our lives, our well-being, our health, which is why municipal good municipal planning matters so much. It has such an impact. And 
I think just how much our zip codes in this case, just how much our living environment contributes to our well-being is understated a lot. And uh, yeah, I wish there was a little bit more weight given there by by people and by decision makers. So nurture over nature in this case. That's my side. That's the side I'm taking. All right. Perfect. (laughs) Do you agree, uh, Katarina? Uh, yes. Um, so when or I was aware um, about the life expectancy difference in Malmö, which is where I'm uh, living, so I'm commuting over to Copenhagen. And I know that there is like a difference in life expectancy of eight years, uh, just depending on it. And I mean, it's a tiny city. It might be Sweden's third biggest city, but it's still a tiny city. Um, and I think eight years um that was super shocking to me. And now Camilla was like, hold on. Right. I'm glad you got this up. I forgot to mention the big, uh, the big report or the big stat that I always share with this. It came out from a city in Canada, Hamilton. It was called the Code Red Report. And they found that uh, within a five kilometer difference between neighborhoods in the same city, uh, one neighborhood had a life expectancy of 86 years, uh, five kilometers down, same city, the life expectancy was 65 years. So we're talking a, a whole generation, 21-year difference. I And I always bring that up to just really highlight, like people understand this whole nature-nurture debate, but something like that really puts it in your face, like just how important uh, these kind of living conditions are for our health and, and our potential to live good lives. Oh my gosh, I'm shocked. I don't want to cuss on the on the podcast, but I'm shocked. So, um, yeah, thanks thanks for bringing that up. Um, really, really interesting stuff. So, um, now, unfortunately for me, probably fortunately from your side, you can breathe a little bit. But um, unfortunately for me, we get to the last question, um, and that is a question we ask every single guest, and it's so interesting to see that hear the different perspectives. Um, and the question is to you: What is a smart city? I think for me, a smart city is a city where everyone is happy. So the kids are happy, the pensioners are happy, the newly arrived are happy, and that where the city enables and welcomes people to connect with each other outside their bubble and eventually like their their neighborhood slash their socioeconomic uh, statuses. Mm-hmm. That for me is a happy city. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the when I think smart, I think also that's a city that maybe removed barriers or uh, made it very easy for to give voice to residents so that they can actually dictate, uh, you know, what kind of decisions are made in their cities to improve their lives. So I think a smart city is um, an engaged city and a city that that listens to people and um, has uh, different amenities set up so that those voices can be heard. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely agree. So with that, I have to say that um, it was really a pleasure to have you both on. Um, I think it's a topic that we need to always have in our mind whenever we're looking at any, any challenge in a city. We always need to be thinking about who is this benefiting? How can we increase the happiness and well-being of people in it? And and ulti- that's the ultimate goal. So thank you so much for shedding so much knowledge and light on this topic. I, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Um, so uh, any last words? No, I don't think so. No, just no, thank you thank so much you. for having me. It's also been a pleasure on our end.
Yeah. yeah, thank you so much. And uh, thanks to all of our listeners, of course, as well. So don't forget, you can always create a free account at babel-smartcities.eu. You can find out more about different projects, solutions, implementations, all kinds of content on there. So yeah. Thank you all for listening. I'll see you at the next stop on the journey to a better urban life.